Good morning, everyone. Uh, glad to have that you could join us live here at Sayreville Church. I want to apologize for the little glitch that took place. We are humbled by it. This is uh, all coming through you through the medium of the uh, internet, and we don't have any control over some of that stuff, so it's humbling. Uh, but these are humbling days that we're living in, are they not? Um, I'm reminded that this Palm Sunday is, uh, is uh, a day that... Uh, Jesus rode on the, on the donkey into Jerusalem. They were laying down the palm branches and the garments for him. And uh, how humbling of the people. They cried out, Hosanna, you know, God save us. And I was reminded of the story of Corey Ten Boom. She, uh, Corey was a survivor of, the Nazi, of a Nazi concentration camp, Ravensbrück, uh, back in World War II. It took out her father and her sister, she survived, wrote a famous book, The Hiding Place, a amazing woman of God now with the Lord. Uh, somebody once asked her one day, how do you stay humble, you know, as famous as you are? And her reply was to think about this day, Palm Sunday. She said, well, I think basically she said, I think about being the donkey that Jesus rode on on his way into Jerusalem. She asked her, her, questionnaire, her questioner, she said, what do you suppose that donkey thought when all the people were cheering and singing Hosanna to Jesus? Do you think maybe he thought it, all the praise was for him? <laughs> That's a pretty good question because I think sometimes when we receive praise, we, we just soon soak it in, then deflect it up to the one who deserves all praise in these humbling days. So speaking of which, it's hard to imagine how just a few months ago, how the most powerful nation on earth, the most powerful economy on earth, the envy of all nations uh, could be brought to its knees as we have, the United States of America. The truth of the matter is, this isn't the first time it's ever happened. That happened in Egypt 3,500 years ago. And just as we kind of wonder where we are, what are we on the precipice of? What are we on the brink of here in the United States? What's going to happen in the next couple of months? And people ask me this all the time, and I don't have the answer. Are, is this all a part of prophecy? I, it could be, but we can't say that dogmatically. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused most of us who pay any attention to the news, and we should, to ask and watch, we watch daily for the next statistic, the next directive, the next restriction. And some of us, some of you, are asking the question, where is God in all of this? Where is God? What's he doing? Is he leaving us, not just in the United States, but around the world in every country? Because this is a world pandemic. Uh, what's he doing? Is he leaving all of us to our own demise? As I was thinking about this today, the scripture that came to my mind is what the prophet Jeremiah said. God is speaking through Jeremiah when he says, I am watching over my word to perform it. That's what God is doing. You want to know what God's doing? He's watching over his word to make sure it actually happens. That gives me comfort. It should comfort you as well. We've been looking at the Passover, and we've been studying for the last several weeks Exodus chapter 12. If you want to take your Bible and go there, we're going to pick it up in verse 21, but not just yet. Studying the Passover, we have looked 
previously in our study of Exodus at how God took out the gods of Egypt, the God, gods and goddesses of Egypt. Uh, in their mind, uh, and there were hundreds of them, they had major gods and minor gods, major goddesses and, and uh, minor ones. But they, in their minds, they provided life, they provided fertility, they provided rain and crops, and they even provided these gods safe passage into the next life. When King Tutankhamun's uh, tomb was discovered in the early 1920s, uh, they discovered no less than, watch, listen, 5,398 artifacts within the tomb. 5,398, including in those artifacts were things like not one but two thrones, this gold mask that went over the casket, the casket itself, uh, uh, six chariots, a wig, yeah, a wig, and even perfume. A lot of good that did him. Oh, yeah, by the way, also a boat, a, a boat that they actually has been reassembled and uh, apparently so that he could, it could take him into the afterlife because the Nile was a god as well. If you've been with us, you already know that. But one by one, God took down the gods of Egypt through this series of plagues. The greatest god himself was Pharaoh, thought to be a god. He was thought to be the god Horus, or uh, the sky god, where the sun is, the god of life and the god of light. This night, this Passover night, is described not once but twice in the text at the very end as, quote, a night of watching, hence the title of this sermon, a night of watching. And so we've identified as God took down the gods of Egypt, he's taking down our own gods and our own culture and taking down some of yours. And we've, we've, we've talked about those in, in previous messages like the God of image, the God of lust, the God of sport. So many of you are just dying to get out there on the baseball field, you know, out on the basketball court, out on the tennis court, somewhere. You, you, you want to run around with those kids because that's what you're used to doing and you can't. Some of these things have become gods to you. The God of wealth is going down and the God of health all do about as much good as King Tut's makeup bag. Oh, yeah, by the way, they found a makeup bag in there too. Anyway, what we're going to do now is we're going to pick it up where we left off in our study, and we're going to talk about this night of watching and talk about people and God who are watching us. Exodus 12, beginning in verse 21. Here's what it says. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to their, your clans and kill the Passover lamb, as was instructed earlier. Take a bunch of hyssop, which is like a little branch, of, uh, and, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. So the hyssop becomes kind of like a paintbrush. None of you shall go out of the door of, your, of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 
You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he's promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say, one of the watchers, the first, by the way, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. And when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped, the people of Israel went and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, as he promised, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians. There was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by, uh, by night, said, go up out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you've said. Take your flocks, your herds, uh, as you said, and be gone. And bless me also. By the way, people wonder what he meant by that. Bless me also. I don't really know. It could be that he thought, wow, this God is so good at cursing. Maybe he's good at blessing. We really don't know. It's not because his heart changed, because he would later go back after the uh, the Jews. Verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. About 600,000 men on foot. We, we estimate that to be about 2 million people in total with wives and children. Probably a little bit more than 2 million Besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, flocks, herds. They all baked unleavened cakes and dough that they had, bought, had brought out of Egypt for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. And finally, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord. There's the title, a night of watching by the Lord. But watch, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So there you have it. As God promised, the death of the firstborn in every single home throughout the entire nation of, of Egypt, with the exception of those who had blood on their homes from the lamb. The death of the firstborn was the worst of all the plagues. But here's the question. Why would it be the worst? I mean, 
Did you notice how devastating those other nine plagues were? I mean, you talk about personal loss. You talk about agricultural loss. You talk about physical loss and pain. That was great, great, unprecedented loss. And yet, have you ever heard somebody say, I'd rather my firstborn die than suffer through this? <laughs> no, just the opposite. You, you hear parents say when their children are hurting or sick or dying, they say things like, why couldn't, be, why couldn't it be me? Why can't I go through this? When our kids hurt, we hurt. Isn't that true? I sat in a conference several years ago, and I had a couple of really hurting kids. They, they were completely off the radar spiritually. One wasn't a Christian, certainly acting like he wasn't a Christian. Both of them were actually not acting like Christians at all. Breaking my heart. I was at this conference and I heard Timothy Keller and John Piper dialoguing with one another on the platform. Piper was actually weeping as he reminisced about his own son, Abraham, who had rebelled against the Lord. And, uh, and it was almost in an awkward moment because he couldn't catch his own composure. And Keller just instinctively spoke to all of us and said, you're never happier than your most unhappy child. Even as I say this to you, it's like, I, it's, it's like I'm reliving it all over again. That went, those words went right through me because that was the reason why. God was doing amazing things at Sailorville Church, planting churches, people getting saved and baptized, things happening, and yet I was miserable on the inside because I just couldn't get beyond those kids that weren't living for Jesus. And when, and when tragedy strikes your firstborn, that brings about a whole new level of grief. The last verse we read says, a night of watching. God was watching. He urged us to make it, his, that is his people, the Jews, to make it a night of watching. God was watching. There's nothing deistic about this passage of Scripture. God didn't just tell him what to do and walk away. He was, he was there watching upon it. And if you saw verse 29, God is not a respecter of persons. Verse 29 says, And at midnight he struck down those firstborn from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn captive in the dungeon, as one writer put it. From the palace to the pits, there is no escaping God's judgment because God is not a respecter of persons. And really, there is no scripture that illustrates this more powerfully than one of the most horrific, well, really it is the most horrific scene in all of the Bible. It's at the very end of the Bible when John writes, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and I saw the dead. These are those who had rejected Jesus Christ. And I hate to say this, but that's probably going to be a number of you that are watching right now. I saw the dead. And then this phrase, great and small, standing before God. And the books were opened in another book, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what was written in the book. But look at that. Look at that description. 
standing before God in future history, so to speak, this is still to come, will be all of the dead who rejected God, who rejected his revelation, who rejected his son. And notice how they're described, great and small, great and small, because God's not a respecter of persons. There's no safe haven for you, my friend, whether you're whether you are rich or you're poor, whether you're popular or you're despised, whether you're successful or you're a failure in business or life, unless you're under the blood, safe, you don't get in to God's house. And if you're a Christian, which I know is many of you, you have already experienced the greater exodus from sin to salvation by trusting in the death and resurrection of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And you're under the blood. The, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And you've gone from sin to salvation, and you have entered into what is often called the victorious Christian life, although sometimes it doesn't look all that victorious. But you need to know someone is watching. Someone's are watching. They watched Jesus. Jesus said, it's not going to be different for us. Luke 14, verse 1 says, we, he entered into a house of a Pharisee, his adversaries, and they, watch this, they watched him closely. Have you ever read that? The Passover and the Exodus, which we are now reading, and studying reminds us of those who are watching us as we leave our places of captivity, our places of sin, our places where we've been enslaved. And how should we be responding to those who are watching us? So now for the balance of our time, let's talk about responding to those who watch us. And the first thing I want to talk about is the children. So if, you're, if your kid's watching, draw near, young people, but even more so, parents. Your kids are watching. Teach them. That's what verse 26 is saying. The, the kids are going to kids, kids come. They're going to wonder, what, what's going on here? When I think about my own kids, it's embarrassing at times when I hear them recollect, as they recall their upbringing, and they tell some stories and they, invariably, they talk about me, and it's, I'm not always put in the greatest light. Let's just put it that way. And some of the stories, it's like, are you kidding me? This is a total caricature of what took place, but it doesn't matter. They have a blast. They make fun of me. I'm cool with it. But imagine, if you would, the drama, the fear, the horror of the Passover night for these little ones. There's two million Jews. And... There is death throughout all of Egypt, except amongst in the quarter of Goshen where, where, the, where the Jewish people are. But there's no way the littles could have comprehended what was going on. You know, killing lands, throwing blood on the houses. What in the world? So that would come later. So God would say, you need to teach them because they're going to come to you and they're going to say, what's this all about? You got to teach them. This is, I'm reminding you how God delivered us through the death of the lamb, the shedding of his blood, the application of his blood, the getting into the safe place of the home, under the blood, 
Our four youngest, when my first wife died, would have been like the littles in Egypt at the Passover. They were too young to absorb the impact of what had taken place. I can remember one of my son's little ones just hearing it, kind of looking weird, and then going back and playing. I remember that was just so surreal, so odd to me. I remember a couple of years later, uh, my, one of my daughters holding a picture of her mother and crying. I heard her crying in her room. I, I walked into the room. I said, what's wrong, honey? And she was holding a picture of her mother. And she says, I, I don't remember her, Dad. I don't remember her. So it was my opportunity to sit down next to her and tell her about her mommy. All of us have stories to tell. We need to tell our kids of our own exit from captivity. They ought to know our stories. And I, I was just recently reminded of this. When those same kids I referred to, and even the ones a little bit older, did not know of a certain episode in my life prior to salvation. And I had to, I had to sit down and explain it to them. And just the other day, uh, my daughter from my, my wife Marilyn's first marriage wrote a powerful devotional to the women of her church explaining uh, the time period in our lives when our families came together and when she and I were just like this. And she wrote about her own pride and stubbornness and, and hardness and how God had to break that. A powerful story. But I read that just the other day thinking, this is how God instructs his children through stories. In verses 35 and 36, you have these kids. They're, they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're, they're trying to, they're, they're wondering what's happening. And these kids, think about this, these Israeli Jewish children grew up in poverty. And verses 35 and 36 says they plundered the Egyptians, they, their gold, their silver, their garments. And they had to be wondering, look at all the gold and the silver and the material we've, we suddenly have. We're rich. Riches are a relative thing, aren't they? Especially today, they're a, they're a fleeting thing. How's that? Retirement fund coming for you. Mine either. Not looking very good, is it? But riches have always been a fleeting thing. Proverbs 23, 5 says they take wings and they fly away. By the way, do you know what the Jews would do with this silver and gold that they amassed from the Egyptians? I know what some of you think. Oh, yeah, I know what they did. They built a calf. They, they, they fashioned a calf. They did. But they also built a tabernacle with it. They built a tabernacle. They fashioned a calf. They built something for the worship of the one true God. And they fashioned something that would be a part of the cult worship of Egypt. They did both. So the point is, our problem really is not, has, and our problem has never really been riches. But what we do with them are better what they do to us. But mark this, moms and dads, your kids are watching. They're watching. And speaking of kids, right now, right now, let me just say this. Let me just walk into your home for a moment. You're sitting there 
observing this. You kids are sitting around the TV, I hope. Moms and dads, this may be the greatest moment in the history of the United States and the world for you to have a hands-on opportunity with your children. Your kids are there. You don't get to run around. You don't have, you don't have to go here and go there. You don't have to pull your hair and out and be at this place, be at that place. I know you wish you could. You'll get back to that, I'm, I'm pretty sure. But for now, you need to take advantage of this time. Your kids are watching. They're listening. They're observing. They're not stupid. They get it. And if they don't get it now, they'll get it later. Throughout this last week, just in the last day, eight days in eight homes, we have eight children. All of these little ones are part of Sailorville Church. Every single one of these little ones have gone to their mommies and daddies because of devotion time, because of a walk they took, because of questions back and forth. And they inquired about knowing Jesus. And everyone that you see here, it just in the last eight days, have placed their faith in Jesus. Moms and dads, your kids are watching. Teach them, not just with your words, but with your lives. Secondly, your enemies are watching. So show them. You need to show them the power of God in your life. Imagine the Egyptians having been decimated already. What, what was going through their mind when they heard of these Jews killing lambs, spreading bloods, putting them on the homes? How bizarre was that? And then the promised death came about. In fact, just to remind you, chapter 12, verse 30 says, there was not a house where someone was not dead. If there were 2 million Jews that left Egypt, how many Egyptians were in Egypt? Let's just say there were 2 million, maybe 3 million. I don't know. But hundreds of thousands of homes, death throughout the country. Is it any, 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 any wonder in verse 39 says these Egyptians wanted to, quote, thrust them out. In Wuhan, China, where this COVID-19 began, they told us that in this city, I can't remember, is it 10 or 11 million? There's a lot of people in this city, but they, they claim that 2,535 uh, people died. That's a lot of people. But most people have doubted that. We've doubted the Chinese for a long period of time, but that's not going to get political here. Except to say that just the last couple of weeks, trucks have been seen in one. They have, there are nine funeral homes, crematoriums, or, uh, or, or other eight, not nine, uh, not nine, eight. And a truck was seen dropping off 2,500 urns with ashes in just one of them. So the estimations are, uh, a conservative estimation is that 26,000 people in Wuhan, China died. Probably more, even though they're reporting just a, a drop in the bucket compared to that. In just one city. Imagine as two million Jews marched out in front of the Egyptians. In front of the Egyptians that were burying hundreds of thousands of bodies. In fact, that's exactly as it is put in Numbers 33, where it says, they marched out defiantly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down. Then there's Pharaoh, another enemy, stubbornly 
in spite of all the evidence, refused to let God's people go. Nine judgments, nine plagues, nine country-crushing blows, and still remained hardened. As Kevin DeYoung put it, for all Pharaoh's hardness of heart, it gained him exactly nothing. And those of you that are watching that are hard of heart right now, it's not going to gain you anything either. Know this. God is showing us in the United States and the world itself who's in charge. And it's not you. It's not me. As for all of our enemies, they're watching us. They're wanting to see how we respond to all of this. And I've got good news, by the way, if you're an enemy of God. God is really, really good, and he loves to make his enemies his friends. <laughs> the Bible says, when we were enemies of God, Romans 5, God demonstrated his love toward us. While we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, if you look at verse 38, it says it wasn't just the Jews who walked out, but it uses the expression, a mixed multitude. I take that to be Egyptians and any, maybe other countries that were seeing what was going on through these couple of months. But some got it. Some of the hardened Egyptians got it. And they joined the Jews. They killed a lamb. They got under the blood, just as you can. Egypt for all her glory, would never regain that glory again. Will we? Will you? I know this, all around us, outsiders are watching. What do they see? We need to show them. We need to demonstrate what true faith looks like in the midst of trial, in the midst of grim, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of uncertainty. The writer of Proverbs put it best, if you faint in the day of adversity, your, your, your strength is small. And this is a time that might just be demonstrating that to some of you. One more thing, one more watcher, the watcher of watchers. Your God is watching. Fear him. Fear him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. And the last verse, verse 42, says that God was watching. I was in an airport a couple of months ago before this whole thing broke. I was sitting there. Some of you have had this experience. A woman got up in front of my wife and I, and she said, would you watch my bag? And she walked away. Now, I kept thinking to myself, what was I supposed to think? Her bag had a tendency to run off on her? <laughs> no. She didn't want somebody running off with her bag. That's what. Look, some of you are more worried about who's watching your stuff than who's watching you. God is watching. So if God is watching, if he's watching then, He's watching the world now. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood. Psalm 29, verse 10 says, the Lord sits as king forever. He's always watching from his throne. And if it's true, then three things. Be fearful. Be fearful. Proverbs 5, verse 21 says, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. I was reading about uh, Marquis de Lafayette, 
who was a French aristocrat. He was a revolutionary hero of the, of the American Revolutionary War, fought with us at Bunker Hill and other areas. I mean, he is a, he's an American hero. Lafayette was actually imprisoned uh, in the area of Belgium years earlier, actually years later. And he's in, he was in a prison for an entire year, dark, dank. Uh, he was sickly. He never saw or talked to anybody in over a year. And he wrote that the only thing he saw was a little people that was carved out in the door. And always there was an eye looking through the people. Didn't matter night, day, afternoon, dead of night, no matter what. Whatever guard stood out in front of that door who never spoke to him. But there was always an eye on him. And Lafayette said, oh, I could have endured anything but that dreaded I. I don't think that's the way God wants us to fear him, but you ought to know that his eye is on you. Fear him and be watchful. If God is watching you, fear him by being watchful. That's what the, remember the last part of it says that, and, and keep this is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. He's telling them to be watchful and remember this ordinance. You and I are to be watchful. We're to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? Are you waiting for him? Just the other day, I meet with a bunch of guys uh, by way of, uh, of, uh, of uh, FaceTime in, in my own personal small group of guys and and one of them said, brand new Christian, he goes, I just want to be ready when he comes. I thought, yes, that's a man who fears God. That's a man who recognizes he's watching. And that's a man who's looking forward to the return of Jesus. And so that leads me to the last thing about fearing God. Why, that he's, be encouraged. Because as the writer of Chronicles puts it, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God's watchfulness was meant to encourage you, not, not, not to condemn you. Encourage you, not condemn you. I remember several years ago after leading a tour, a couple of uh, friends, uh, another couple of us, we took a, the Euro train from Rome all the way up to Venice, Italy, and we got on a boat, a taxi boat, to go to our place where we were staying. We were in Venice. I mean, wow, how romantic, how cool, how away from everybody in the world. Nobody knew where we are, what we were doing. It was amazing. We were on this boat. My wife's standing right next to me, and there, was a, there were luggage around us, and there was a young woman right next to me and just staring at me. I was, it was really making me feel awkward. I finally said, can I help you? And she goes, hey, did you pastor a church in Clarion, Iowa several years ago? <laughs> I had. I did. And she actually attended the church for a period of time. Can you believe it? Why do I tell you that? Because God uses people. Listen to this. God uses people to express his omnipresence. We know that God is omnipresent. We know that he's everywhere. And that should cause us that truth alone should cause us to fear him. But we don't fear him. So what does he do? He puts people in our, in our, in our way. He puts people 
there when we're doing something wrong. He puts people there when we're doing something right. Uh, sometimes it's to affirm us. Sometimes it's to confront us. Always it's to give us a big picture of God, remind us that he's there and to increase our fear of him. So on this Passover night, it was a night of watching where God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over your home. Not when I see you, not when I see your accomplishments, not when I see your religion, not when I see all the things you do for God. No, but when I, not when I see your good intentions, but when I see the blood of the lamb. Is his blood on your house? Or is it just a bad paint job? Do you really have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, clothing you? Christ died for you. He is the true Lamb of God who takes away your sin. Have you placed your faith in him? If you haven't, go to him. God is in the business of making his enemies his friends. Wouldn't you like to become one today? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the gospel in the Old Testament, the Passover, the Passover lamb, the people of God complying with you, applying the blood to their own homes and coming under the safety of it. And then, Lord, how you took them out of that captivity, gave them good gifts, and led them away while their enemies buried their own dead right in front of them. God, you are a righteous God and you will mete out judgment in the end. But you've already poured all your wrath upon your son Jesus and if we would just accept him, believing in him, then we can avert the judgment that is surely waiting for us who have never come under the blood. And for those of us who have, Lord, may we rejoice in it and go about our business realizing the kids are watching, those who oppose us are watching, and most importantly, so are you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.